It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come to thedispatch.com to check out all our free standalone stuff on the website. Uh, um, no charge, no paywall for any of that stuff. But if you want to get the 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 sweet 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 nectar of intellectual and political goodness you should become a member and help us grow even more to dominate the known universe um okay so today's very exciting we have a good friend of mine um a remnant fan favorite he also has been on this show more than any other guest he is our first episode 11 guest which means a bunch of things. Uh, first of all, he not only qualifies for the gold jacket twice over, um, we now have decided that when you hit double digits, when the dispatch finally opens up a deli, we're going to name a sandwich after him. <laughs> um, and also episode 11 has some storied uh, resonance in the, the, the before times of this podcast, which we don't like to discuss. So I'm a little nervous about how this goes. Regardless, Jim Garrity, welcome back to the dispatch. Jonah, my friend, it is really good to see you. Uh, I'm already imagining I want my sandwich to have a lot of meat and a lot of cheese and maybe just a little, like just enough vegetables on it to qualify as technically being healthy. So somebody says, oh, what'd you have? Oh, I had a vegetable sandwich, you know, but it was like, you know, it was Dagwood. It was like, you know, three straight inches of roast beef, turkey, ham. What else you got? Swiss, cheddar, lots of mayo, you know. Just keep piling it up. Yeah. So, I mean, you are, um, I should know this more definitively, but I think it's a good educated guess. Some sort of Irish by extraction? You are correct. Yeah. A little bit of Polish, a little bit of German in there. Insert all the, how many of me does it take to screw in a light bulb jokes here? Um, but uh, yes. And um, and you grew up, you grew up where? I'm trying to remember now. I'm brain A small town in New Jersey called Metuchen. See, that's what I thought you were a Jersey guy. That's oh, yeah. what I was thinking. Um, but I knew your dad lives in one of the Carolinas and you live in Northern Virginia. And, and I couldn't remember. You're a fairly deracinated white ethnic. I guess got to tell you that. So, that very, um, yeah. You know, in, in the difference between myself and say like a Michael Brendan Doherty is that well, my dad was an accountant. So in my house growing up, IRA meant individual retirement account. Uh, for Michael, it's the other IRA, you know, you know, either way, like Peter King, he wants you to put your money in both of them. So I have a, friend who's british um and he and doherty struck up a conversation at some nr event a while back and and i love michael michael's a great guy mm-hmm. oh yeah, yeah yeah i tease because but, i love but michael um and this british guy were talking about english history english irish relations in the past 
And the way Michael matter-of-factly talked about things that they teach English school children were among the greatest war crimes of the 20th century. <laughs> and Michael was like, yeah, that was, you know, tactically, that was a question, you know, we, you know, we <laughs> on the one yeah. hand, on the other hand, whatever. Yeah. And uh, so anyway. I, I have had more, including a fairly prominent congressman. Uh, I, I guess if you have an Irish last name, there's just this assumption that you come from a big family and one of your brothers must be a cop. One of your brothers must be in the mob. One of your brothers must be in the, I, I only have one brother. Uh, one of your brothers must be a priest. Um, and you all gather for, for, and you have Sunday a sister who's a nurse somewhere. Yeah. You know. A nurse and a nun and, you know, uh, and, and all these, you know, and that's not really how I grew up at all. It was very Steven Spielbergian. Um, you, you would have thought we were wasps from, from the way we, we went to Catholic church. And everything. We were, right. you know. So you did not have um, the Catherine Lopez experience. Um, cause she does come from that kind of family, I believe. You know, yeah. Very, we, we, we were happy, but not, a, not, not, we, we didn't live up to a lot of Irish stereotypes. You could say. Yeah. So yeah. Well, I mean, uh, there was a lot of sobriety, you know? Fortunately, but I'm Irish enough to be able to make that joke. <laughs> fortunately, nobody leaps to any conclusions about one's worldview or culture yeah. with the last yeah. name Goldberg. Yeah. I and mean, it's so, so, you know, vanilla for people. Um, did I, did I, I, ever, I would share with you that the wrestler Goldberg had originally thought about wrestling under the name the Mossad. And he tell, as he tells the story, he says the most menacing name he could come up with was Goldberg. <laughs> I saw that and I thought of you and I've meaning to tell you this for years, but anyway, I like it. I like it. Um, yeah. I mean like the, there are a lot of people who like purely back in the Clinton times. Um, I remember one time on like MSNBC, someone saying, someone asking me, so is there a, uh, um, is there some sort of vendetta between the Goldbergs and the Clintons? And I was like, <laughs> You make it sound like there are a thousand dentists in New York and New Jersey who are out to get the Clintons. I mean, I don't know what you're talking about, but anyway. All right. So um, uh, among your beats of late of the last year um, is you were one of the earliest and, and I would say most perspicacious observers about the origins of the Wuhan uh, virus development and, um, you had some great stuff and we talked about it on this podcast a year ago, I guess. And, um, and now, and then for like basically a year, it was considered outrageous to, um, even raise the possibility that, that this was a leak, an, an accident, right? No, I, I think only idiots who haven't thought things through believe that it was a um a bioweapon attack which you heard some fever swamp people kind of saying and it's like most bioweapon attacks wouldn't you wouldn't launch them on your own soil first the way the chinese did if it was a bioweapon attack um so i don't think anybody serious that ever thought it was deliberate but whether it was an accidental leak um was considered to be almost as insane as calling it a bioweapon attack which is ridiculous and now all of a sudden everyone's allowed to talk about it so i figured i'd have you on you can kind of walk us through the history of it a little bit, and then I'm going to do some punditry about why all of a sudden it's okay to talk about it. Sure. Um, I guess trying to, you know, as they sing in Sound of Music, start at the very beginning. Um, I was among those who, in the first weeks of this pandemic, you know, basically bought into the conventional wisdom that this probably came from a wet market somewhere in Wuhan because epidemiologists and virologists and people who study these things have been warning about this for years and years. You could find articles in places like Scientific American 
literally with the headline, is China going to be the origin for the next big pandemic? Uh, and I think this ran in like 2017 or something like that. And the basic answer was, you've got a lot of animals uh, sometimes being slaughtered right there in front of all the kinds of people. It's crowded. It's got poor ventilation. There's all kinds of animals involved, uh, sometimes through smugglers or, or you know, less than legal means. This was just a perfect environment for a virus to jump from an animal to a human being and and set off a new pandemic. So, like, I remember, you know, I went back, found that article. Like, okay, well, that probably is what happened here. And then probably in, like, late March or so, I came across this, you know, like, two-hour YouTube video from a guy who, you know, your, your first thoughts, oh, you two-hour YouTube video. This guy must be an Alex Jones tinfoil hat-wearing kind of guy. But he lived in China, and he kind of lays stuff out. And he had, I don't know if he'd been to Wuhan specifically, but he laid out this very detailed theory of how this could have come to pass. And I just like, okay, I'm going to go through this and I'm going to look at, you know, open source, what's on the internet, what, you know, if I see a document in Chinese, I'm going to run it through Google Translate and let's just see what happens and just see how much of this I can verify. And it's much, you know, somewhat to my surprise, there was quite a bit that was verified. The first it was very clear was both the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the Wuhan Centers for Disease Control were both doing research on coronaviruses and bats. So as I often like to say to people, if God forbid there was a terrible new virus viral outbreak somewhere outside Atlanta, people might think, huh, that's where the CDC headquarters is. Maybe there's some connection. There. If it happened outside Fort Detrick, Maryland, people would start saying, okay, that's where the, the U.S. Army does its bioweapons uh, response research. Maybe that's something leaked from there. Um, and then you look at the uh, distance between the, uh, the the location of these labs and where the wet market was, the fact that while a lot of the first cases could be traced back to the Hunan seafood market, it really couldn't be, you couldn't trace back all of them to that. Um, and so a lot of these things in these videos made sense as circumstantial evidence. It was not, there was nothing like resembling a smoking gun. Um, but yeah, it's worth it. When you see something like uh, Xi Zhengli, the Chinese virologist who was nicknamed Batwoman, uh, for her work with that species. She did an interview with Scientific American, and this is, you know, probably like a month, actually, it's you know, or sometime in early 2020. She says that when she first heard about the outbreak, her first thought was, could they have come from our lab? And then she goes on and say, well, it definitely didn't come from their lab. Okay, but clearly somebody who knows this stuff pretty well is observing that this was not an, un, you know, an unthinkable scenario. Um, you can go online and find video of one of the famous virologists at the Wuhan Centers for Disease Control going into the caves and collecting samples from bats. Now, if bats are stressed, they apparently shed a lot of viruses. I would imagine that having a scientist grab <laughs> you, pull you down, stretch you out, and they take anal swabs. Jonah, I'm sure this is exactly the words you expected to hear on this podcast today. Now, I could be wrong, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you know, collecting an anal swab is probably very stressful for the bat to say nothing of the uh, the virologist doing it, that's when they'd be shedding them the most. And the guy's doing rubber gloves. So the idea of a needle or something puncturing that glove seems pretty likely. Bats shed viruses in their blood. They shed viruses in their urine. Anyway, so you go through it. It's conceivable. You're like, okay, you're collecting this. And this guy had said, this uh, particular bat sample collector said that at various times he had gotten sick and he felt the need to quarantine uh, for two weeks to a month after having these trips to these things. So you're looking at this and already you're seeing how research into these bats and these viruses could lead to somebody getting it. The other detail which became clearer like months later was this recognition that roughly four in 10 people are asymptomatic when they catch this virus. So you can imagine a scenario where the virus is in the lab, something gets, you know, somebody's not properly securing their mask or their gloves or some sort of their equipment. It gets into them 
but they're one of the 40% who's, uh, who's uh, asymptomatic and they don't exhibit any symptoms. So they go home and they kiss their wife or they hug their kids or they talk, you know, they, they interact with somebody else and that's where it gets to somebody. And that's where we're often running and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then finally, kind of a thing that just from the very beginning, I'll admit, had colored my perception of these things is that once I had done this really elaborate timeline at National Review, looking at everything the Chinese government had said from the first inklings of these reports in December, all the way through to about, I think, you know, late January, for three, anywhere from three to six weeks, depending on when you, when you think this actually began, and it became reasonable for these doctors on the ground in Wuhan to say, well, we have somebody came in, he's coughing, and now I'm coughing. They've said, oh, this, this is going to be passed from person to person. Minimum for three weeks, the Chinese government was saying, no, no, there's no way this can be jumped from person to person. So we know the Chinese government lies. So when the Chinese government says, oh, there's no way this could possibly be a leak from our labs. I'm sorry, that the denial doesn't do anything for me. I don't particularly find anything. The one quibble I'm going to add to your observation about the bioweapon stuff, you're, you're correct that there's no, this is not a release. This does not make a lot of sense as a useful bioweapon. It's far too contagious. There's no point in using this on a foreign population if there's a good chance that at some point it's going to come back to your own population. The one thing I will note is that um, this came up as I was doing research for a novel I wrote last year. And I wrote the novel because everyone asked me why haven't you written a book about the uh, the, the trail act back, leading back to the Wuhan labs? And the short answer is I don't want to. Uh, the, <laughs> the longer answer is it's more fun to write fiction. But like, there's a whole chapter in there that's basically, you know, all right, here's everything I found. Here's, here's all the stuff. And it basically is China, we know for certain they had a bioweapons program for a good long time. A lot of the research that you can do on a virus, that you know, what makes it virulent, what makes it contagious, what can you do, can you do gain of research, uh, gain of function research to make it more virulent and to make it more contagious? Um, and you have to do, you know, a lot of scientists would say you have to do that if you're going to know how to beat the really dangerous viruses. There are other scientists who look at that. What are you kidding me? That's, that's the most dangerous thing you could possibly do. The reward is not worth the risk. I'm kind of agnostic on that point, but I do think that um, there's considerable evidence to think that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was not entirely civilian, or at the very least, the research they were doing was dual use. Meaning, sure, it teaches you a lot about how to beat the virus, but if you wanted to, say, weaponize a virus, a lot of what you learn about viruses and how they spread and all that kind of stuff, that becomes very useful to a military application. So, yeah, it's, so was it a bioweapon? No. Could it be some sort of side effect of bioweapons research they were doing? I think that can't quite be ruled out at this point. Yeah, I, I, just to be clear, I'm not ruling that out. My point is there were people who were straight up in the fever swamp world saying this was an attack from China. It was trying to ruin the Trump economy or ruin the Trump you know, presidency or whatever and all that kind of stuff. And my point is I don't put it past China being willing to use bioweapons for whatever reason. I don't put past China that they were researching bioweapons. That's entirely possible or dual use. That's entirely possible. My only point was if the plan was to take out the Trump administration, the virus might have first appeared in the United States of America, not in China and then Italy and then, you know, all these other places. It's just not how like a super savvy military attack using bioweapons on the United States would play out. And I got to think that if, I mean, I, I was looking for numbers on this. If this thing cost the U.S. economy all in something like $16 trillion over time, um, it had to cost the Chinese something close to that as well. 
And yeah. oh, they shut down Beijing and Shanghai for long stretches and just said, yeah. Yeah, like, and global know. trade was affected yeah. and consumer demand was affected. I mean, it just it was just like the conspiracy theory part of it doesn't work. Um, but the idea that it was a lab accident, I think, is entirely plausible. But so what is your answer to the question? Why should we care? I mean, I have my answers, you know, starting with 16 trillion dollars and almost 600,000 dead Americans. But like, what is the what is the 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 smart public health official, all these people who are starting to write these pieces saying we need to look at this. Is it just so that this doesn't happen again? Is there, are we going to present a bill to China? What is the, what are the reasons well, why we should care so much? Don't let it happen again. Yeah. That strikes me as a really good, strong incentive to have. Sure. Um, sure. I, I, the other thing is that like, you know, here's, I'm going to start my answer, not knowing where I'm going, Jonah. So if this ends up making, that, that less never sense happens you, on this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So, you and I are roughly the same age. You're a little older than I am. We've been through 9-11. We've been through the great... Life has thrown some curveballs at us. But we never saw anything that was quite so, you know, not apocalyptic, but let's say in the neighborhood of apocalyptic. Like when you saw those images of Times Square empty, right? Everybody in America is told, stay in your homes, don't interact, don't visit your grandmother, don't visit your parents, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. That this threw us for a loop like nothing else. Uh, you know, this is also like one of the, the few things I think has happened in our lifetimes that affected everyone, like in, in some form or fashion. And in a lot of ways, it affected them enormously. And of course, it has killed more than 3 million people worldwide. And I think we're in the, you know, 60 some million cases. I got to check what the case number up, you know. So the, the ramifications of this are huge. Now, if this is just a matter of dumb luck that some farmer in southwest China, which is quite far from you know, the, where the natural uh, horseshoe bats uh, are, are you know, most common down there, like 900 miles from Wuhan, um, if, if he just stepped in Guano at the wrong place at the wrong time and it jumped into him and somehow that's what set off the, the worldwide pandemic, well, that, that's just dumb luck. That's really unfortunate, and that happens. We, you know, we can still be angry at China for lying for the first couple of weeks of this, but this is, you know, uh, what are you going to do, right? If it comes up to animal smugglers, and that this was in some bat or pangolin caught in the southwest of the country, and then they brought it to Wuhan, and that's what set it off. Okay, you know, I, I don't like animal smugglers. I don't like uh, the illegal animal trade. Fine, let's all, you know, come down on these guys like a ton of bro, ton of ton of bricks. But if it was the Chinese government doing research into viruses that other scientists said was reckless, that the U.S. You know, two U.S. scientists who visited the uh, the uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology years ago, uh, who were invited and wrote a state a, a memo at the State Department saying, "Whoa, these guys are really understaffed. They don't have nearly enough trained folks. We're worried about safety at this lab." If that's what happened, then the consequences are much greater because it, for the last minimum since the Clinton years, you could even argue this goes back to the 80s. There has been this big, broad, bipartisan bet on the part of America's leaders, political leaders, business and economic leaders, academic leaders, media and Hollywood leaders, this belief that if we're nicer to China and we trade more with them, they'll be nicer to us. That we will, they, our values will rub off on them and it certainly couldn't happen where their values rub off on us and we start supporting censorship and we start supporting, you know, uh, suppression of dissent and things like that. It's, I, I think that it's now very, very clear. It's a, it turned out to be the wrong bet. If they were so reckless that they ended up creating some, creating a worldwide pandemic that killed 3 million people and counting, like that, elim that shows you just how vividly 
Um, this is a malevolent force for the world. This is, this is extraordinarily dangerous. And I keep thinking, like, one of the things I kind of wonder, like, how do you fix this stuff? Well, besides the fact that it'd be nice to get into the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the Wuhan Centers for Disease Control and to have inspections of these labs and see what the kind of stuff they were working on and do a full unfettered investigation, which is what, you know, the World Health Organization has not been able to do. Maybe it makes sense to have international inspections of labs that are doing this kind of work. Maybe it's good to have somebody looking over your shoulder and say, hey, that guy didn't put his gloves on or oh, that guy's got a hole in his mask or, or oh, these kinds of things. Again, we kind of need to do this stuff. But the other thing is also, I think it is good for us to have this kind of conversation. Do we need gain of function research or is this kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy of, well, we really need to do more research on dangerous viruses because these labs keep leaking dangerous viruses, you know, that we, uh, so that's my sort of, look, I think this is a story of our lifetimes. This is, this is the, you know, one of the biggest and most consequential mysteries. And one of the things could be if China is as bad as we think, if this is ultimately because somebody in the Chinese authority screwed up and then instead of saying, you know, crap. We had a virus escape. Everybody do this stuff. This is what we're dealing with. And instead, they wasted time by saying, no, 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 it's just, it's just bad food. Bad food at the seafood market. What are you going to do? And that's what let this virus get out. And that's what caused all these consequences. I mean, just aside from what our government ought to do, Jonah, imagine like there are 3 million dead people in this world who have loved ones who would now have the Chinese government as the person to blame. China would become a pariah state that would make North Korea look like the life of the party. Right? And this would be, you know, could that lead to war? I don't know. But you just have like, you know, millions upon millions of people around the world who would just suddenly wake up every morning trying to figure out how do I screw the Chinese government today? So, yeah, the consequences for this are pretty darn big. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I'm completely there with you because I have I have grown incredibly cynical and world weary about the capacity for um, people to write off and disregard the terrible things that we know China has done. And, um, and I agree with you. Look, I mean, like, um, the, if this boils down to one, uh, bat anus swabber who forgot to put the thing in the Ziploc bag and seal it properly, by the way, whenever I think about the bat anus swabbers, um, reminded it was Norm Macdonald when he was on SNL news, uh, he had this great bit where he said, uh, the list of the world's worst jobs have come in again. And for the second year in a row, the worst job is assistant crack whore. Um, I think bat anal swabber is up there. Um, mm, strong like contender. How, yep. Like when you come home and your wife or your husband says, how was work today? And <laughs> like, what, what, what I saw an amazing bat ass, you know, um, it's just, it's, it's, it's a bad time. And, and if, if that dude or gal, I don't know, but if the person who, if, if in fact it was a lab accident that, I mean, the real blame would go to the bureaucrat or the party official who decided not to respond to it properly. Um, but if that dude, if there is a individual human being who's responsible for this thing, getting out of a lab, that person is more important than like Gavrilo Princip was the person who shot Archduke Ferdinand. Um, by orders of magnitude, right? And I mean, one of the most consequential human beings in all of at least modern history. And, um, um, and he should feel pretty bad about himself if he knows what he, <laughs> that he did this. I mean, I'm just, yeah, yeah. But it, you know, mean, it would also but, illuminate, like, if, 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 if similar scenario had happened in France, we might have a bad pandemic, but it wouldn't be quite the same because for all the flaws of the French, and, and you know, we can go on at length about that, 
like open societies, when somebody says, oh no, I accidentally, we accidentally had, like the CDC has had, has had lab accidents. They found smallpox in a closet. Once you start reading about the history of lab accidents, you will like, let's say be afraid to come out of your bedroom, but like there's, there's no shortage. The Russians had this giant fire at a place where they keep their smallpox. Uh, they had a leak in anthrax back when they were the Soviet. You like, there's just a ton, this stuff happens. I don't say all the time, but like with more than we'd freak- like. Yeah, way more than we would like. So the first problem, like when I wrote my thing a year ago, with a number of people who said, Jim, you're not even a scientist. These are scientists are just too careful for this. They're just too (laughs) diligent. And I would point out that like, you know, the first SARS escaped from the Beijing Centers for Disease Control twice. Um, So the idea that it's these guys would never screw up ever on a single time. I just, you know, I've I've rejected that from from early on. but I think the, the bigger problem is like, look, everybody's going to make their screw-ups. In open societies, the screw-ups get communicated fast and they get dealt with fast. And I don't know whether it's like you want to get into the arguments about like shame societies or something like that, but clearly the Chinese government's attitude was, or at least the lab managers, it was, oh, oh, you, oh uh, Jenkins over there just had it spill or, or something like that. Just pretend, cover it up, pretend, pretend nobody's going to notice. Well, hopefully it'll go away. It didn't go away. Like the moment the hospitals are filling up in Wuhan, you think you might say, oh, this is the sample of what's going out out there. Here's what we know about this virus so far. And here's how you can stop. And nobody did that. And my sneak, if that's the case, then like the Chinese regime ranks among history's greatest monsters. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's an important point. I, I recently had Klon Kitchen on, uh, who's a former CIA guy and, and does um, our sort of tech cyber stuff for AI now, really impressive guy. And I was asking him about like how, after the colonial pipeline, pipeline hack, you know, I keep hearing from people like him that, that we do a lot of badass stuff out there, but we never seem to hear about it. You never hear about like the Chinese railway system being shut down by a hack. I mean, you hear about Stuxnet, but you know, very little of that. And he says, and he, you know, part of his answer, um, is which you know is part of loaded into my question but you know part of his answer is this closed society thing where um um when the colonial pipeline stuff happens here word gets out and when stuff like that happens in uh authoritarian countries the regime is so terrified of its own people and terrified of its prestige internationally that they don't want the world to know that we got a you know we got a fastball past them and so they keep it secret and so that's part of it. And it reminds me, I think it was like literally the first thing I ever read in National Review in, in the 1980s. I remember reading this piece about, um, it wasn't the first piece, it was, uh, it was close to it, but uh, about how the Soviet Union could not be a thriving modern economy because everywhere in the Soviet Union, the equivalent of their, their Xerox machines were chained up at night. Because you couldn't risk people making Samastat or, you know, copies of classified information and all that kind of stuff. And all you have to do is watch the Chernobyl documentary on, on HBO, not documentary, the miniseries, yeah, docu- which is just yeah. fantastic to see how that mindset where you're more worried about your immediate superiors than you are about anything else, in part because your immediate superiors can kill you, which doesn't really happen the same way in, in open societies. Um, that is a perfect recipe for sort of groupthink, cover your ass, uh, hope it all go away kind of mentality. And and but again, I don't. I, I first of all, I don't think we're ever going to prove it, right? I mean, and because like you would need a level of Chinese cooperation to prove it, or you would need 
the mother of all whistleblowers um, who would be comfortable risking the murder of literally every person, not just in his family, but who knows this person's name, um, you know, uh, to get that kind of information. And even then the Chinese would say it's a forgery and all that kind of stuff. So it'll, I think it'll always be an open question. Um, maybe there's some science that you're aware of that says, oh no, we can check the DNA history on this and it proves that it was manipulated in a lab and blah, blah, blah. But it mutates so much. It just, that just yeah, strikes I, me as it's going to be an open yeah. question forever. Um, people with much greater backgrounds in genetics than me have argued about this back and forth. Are there such people? Uh, you know, um, <laughs> like, you know, people, you know, it was, it's been nice to have people say nice things about what I've written in the last year and a half over this. And if it's because I'm really good at explaining sometimes very complicated concepts to laymen, Jonah, it's because I'm the ultimate layman. I can't, you know, I've, I've never done a medical correspondent before. I've never done a science correspondent. You know, I, every day I woke up with like, well, what do I want to know about this? And to the extent I did anything good and useful, like a lot of it was something like the issue of does, you know, hydroxychloroquine work turned into this instant political football. Trump says it works, so it must be good. Trump says it works, so it must be bad, you know. And like I wrote, wrote I, very little of the journalism I saw was like, all right, so what is hydroxychloroquine? What, what do you use it for? What's it do? And I was able to lay out, well, it's an immunosuppressant. And you know, I you know, read through medical journals and read about the drug and stuff. And it's like, okay, so if, you're the, if your infection with COVID-19 is sending your body into a cytokine storm where you're basically attacking healthy cells, your body's immune system is damaging itself. Well, in those circumstances, hydroxychloroquine, which you know, shuts down or, or slows down your immune system, could be very useful. If you're not in those circumstances, then actually could be very bad that we're going to weaken your immune system when you're trying to fight off an infection. So the answer is, it depends but everybody wanted to turn into rock'em sock'em robots and just you know fight each other because it was a proxy war over Trump. So, so anyway, there, there was like there was like maybe this is a good segue to, to media discussions or something. Like there are times where we can get into our usual you know my side rocks, your side sucks, back and forth stuff. And the pandemic was not the right time for like, you know, like lives were at stake. This was the time to put all that stuff aside and say hi. We're in the media. We're going to give you the straight facts without regard of whether this is good for our preferred side or better, because you need to know this right now. And not nearly enough people in the, in the journalism world seem to have that. And that's why it turned into red state governors are being reckless and dangerous, but blue state governors are being awesome. You know? Well, no, I mean, I, I, had, I had Neil Ferguson on last week and for his new book, Doom. And um, uh, everyone wants to like beat suicide of the West for like depressing titles. And um <laughs> Um, he's very, you know, he's very harsh on Trump and how Trump responded to things. And I think you would agree with most of his criticisms yeah, about yeah, Trump. Yeah, it was bad. <laughs> it was but bad. one of, one of his points, and I, I don't know, I don't agree with his analysis entirely. I, 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 he thinks that even though Trump handled things badly, we would have been where we were regardless because of CDC failures. And I, I don't, I don't, I'm just not persuaded by that. I think he made a bad situation worse and we can talk about it if you want, but part of his larger point is, is exactly this, which I do agree with entirely, is that the, the, the need to make everything, every narrative either reflect positively on Trump, which a lot of the right got obsessed with, or reflect negatively on Trump, which a lot of the mainstream media and the left got obsessed with, made it almost impossible to talk about facts, including where we started this conversation, which is whether or not we should talk about whether this escaped from a lab, you know, whether this was an accident that got shut down because Tom Cotton was talking about it and Tom Cotton bad, blah, 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 blah. And it was a really dumb kind of conversation. I can understand why some reasonable people 
sort of like the way Fauci, I th- again, irresponsibly said masks don't matter because he wanted to prevent a, a run on masks. I could understand a similar thinking saying, hey, people are freaking out right now. The last thing we need to do is get into this jingoistic thing about China. Let's just deal with things. I'm not saying I agree with it, but I could see where some reasonable people could get there. But the rush from the Bill de Blasio's and the MSNBC types and the Nancy Pelosi types to say that a travel ban on China, um, as poorly implemented as that travel ban was, was racism, is just, it's, it's, that is as the, as the uh, guy who, the anal swabber who uh, <laughs> lost his mind might say, is bad crazy. And, um, uh, and that's where we were on so much of this stuff. I mean, I, I think I have the exact same attitude as you do, you know, because I, I listen to the editor's podcast, I know where you come down on a lot of these things, um, about masks. I, I don't like them. I think they are not the greatest burden in human history. Um, I think that wearing them when the rules require it and, are, and, the, and the rules are rational is fine. But also wearing them when you're out jogging alone is neurotic and bizarre. And I don't know if you saw this David Hogg thing where he says he's going to keep wearing masks just so people don't think he's a conservative. Um, even if you're that David was, Hogg, who's going to make that mistake? <laughs> you know, exactly. I, the, the need to pigeonhole the entire pandemic into battle lines about culture war stuff and Trump stuff was not America's finest moment. I mean, it just wasn't on either side. And I probably put more blame on Trump than a lot of people, because I think the way he conducted his presidency was, it was a, it was a feature, not a bug to make people crazy. And he liked, he liked the trolling and the responses that it got out of people, which is not statesmanship, but that doesn't mean, you know, like it, I'm perfectly comfortable saying Trump baited the media time and time again to overreact to him. That is not an excuse for the media constantly overreacting. It just says that the blame is just rich and marbled throughout everything. I was going to say, if you went back in time and said to me, Donald Trump, the China hating germaphobe who hates, who refuses to shake hands with people. He eventually got over it and decided to run for president. But, you know, like, like these were interesting, you know, character traits and views of Trump before he ran for president. The virus, like the interesting thing is like, you you can, you can imagine an alternate history where Trump does not downplay it because he's worried about the stock market, does not tell, you know, spend the first couple of weeks telling people it's going to be fine. You have nothing to worry about it, but who instead reacts the other way and says, those filthy Chinese, I knew there was something coming this way. Everybody stop touching each other. Don't touch your face. It's all bad. You know, like he'd go on that. Well, actually, we might have been much better off. Um, yeah. And, that, you know, like we, we you know, I, it's much to our frustration. And, and it's interesting, like, you know, he, you know his refusal, oh, you, you mentioned masks. Um, CDC had this really, you know, a study that came out, which is like, oh, you know, this proves masks work. And it compared counties that had mask mandates versus counties that did not have mask mandates. And the rate of increase, not the total, but the rate of increase in deaths after 120 days was 1.9% higher in the no mask mandate counties than the mask mandate counties. It's about three months, just under 2%. It's not nothing. I'd rather have my rate of increase you know, lower than, than higher. So yeah, I'll, I'll take that. It also is not earth shattering. The other thing, which is that if you, you know, if you got nothing, then yeah, a piece of cloth is better than nothing. If you've got a N95 mask, well, that's better than a piece of cloth. If you've got vaccinations in which your body is now prepared to fight this thing off, well, then you don't need to worry about masks because your body is already prepared to fight the thing off. So it's, you know, it, you know, my, my argument was like people say, oh, the you know, mask can't, you know, the 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 
webbing or, or the, the stitches aren't tight enough to keep out everything. All right, cops know that bulletproof vests aren't going to come over them head to toe. They wear it because it improves their odds. Like that was my attitude on this thing. But also once you're vaccinated. Surgeons and doctors wear masks. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, they you know, for, I mean, for a reason. Yeah. yeah. You know, so. <laughs> so um, we can move off COVID in a second, but I, I need to know what your explanation is about the sudden reversal from uh, Walensky, Rachel Walensky, Raquel, Rachel? Yeah. Um, The CDC director where like on Wednesday or Tuesday, she's saying she's not going to send her vaccinated kid to camp because it's too risky. And on Thursday, she's saying uh, masks are all over. Vaccines do everything. I've heard her explanation, um, which is that, well, JAMA released a new article and we changed our mind (laughs) on everything. I don't find that particularly persuasive given my my cynicism about these things do you have a theory of the case um the cynical interpretation would be polling feedback uh or or something that Biden administration realized this was becoming a real political liability and the order came from down on high i don't see any indication that necessarily that that's a case but you know Dr. Walensky can, you know, tell what the the mood of the country is. And I think you could see if, you know, anecdotally, if you're looking out your window, compliance with masks was slowly shrinking as I, you know, for good reason is as more and more of the country got vaccinated, people were like, well, hell this, I'm not wearing my mask. And there was no good reason. And in fact, I think they also recognized that the arguments in favor of, well, you should still wear a mask, even if you're vaccinated. And even if the person you're talking to is vaccinated, because there's this, you know, infinitesimal, this really much smaller chance that you could be uh, positive and have caught the virus and be asymptomatic. And even though all the studies show that you stop, you shed much fewer viruses once you're vaccinated, there's still that small chance and that vaccinated, you know, like you start becoming, you know, uh, uh, like the magic bullet theory of how the virus gets from you to somebody else and sickens them or something like that. Um, And we, you know, we really had, look, one of the things that's, you know, I, I was writing about the, the vaccination effort for the first couple of months and just how, you know, this was messy for a long stretch, but we just kept plugging away at it. And each day it was, all right, it was a million. Then we got two million. Now we got three. I mean, we just get chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. It was always going to be something of an arbitrary red line of when you said, okay, mass off. There, there was no magic moment where you're like, aha, okay. You know, they, they, it's not when they said, was it like last Thursday? <laughs> I think, I think the, it was Thursday. actually, Jonah, yeah. what really did it is that I posted in the corner on Wednesday how ridiculous Biden looked in the Oval Office with Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi and uh, Kamala Harris, all of whom have been vaccinated. Like, there's no risk to any of them. Their their bodies are as prepared as they're going to get to encounter the virus. I'd like to think it was my corner post that did it. I don't think that's what actually did. But I do think you're seeing this um, accumulated mass of an argument of this is getting ridiculous. And so they said, you know what? All right, you're right. Mass off. Everybody's fine. If you're vaccinated. Yeah, I don't, it's, the thing is, it was such incompetence in terms of just the political and messaging management of it, because this is like, this should have been, you know, uh, you know, imagine if George W. Bush's mission accomplished moment actually was a mission accomplished moment, you know, this should have been the equivalent of that with, you know, Biden you know, having a presser announcing to the nation masks are over and said it was like three o'clock in the afternoon. The White House seemed to be caught completely off guard by it. Um, you can make an argument. Well, this reflects well on the CDC because it shows that they're not, you know, uh, 
coordinating with their political, uh, you know, bosses. But we know that's in fact what social scientists call not true. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, the about face on school openings that we got from Walensky where all of a sudden, you know, Jen Psaki is saying, well, she was just speaking in her personal capacity, you know, which is not something that the CDC director does when they're giving yeah. an interview yeah, there, as the no CDC director. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. it might, if she was asked, like, do you think they should do over the last two seasons of Game of Thrones? <laughs> like, yeah, okay, that's her personal capacity. <laughs> but like, yeah. she was answering a direct question about no, I, like. I, I think actually that would also be the official stance of the CDC. I think those last <laughs> two seasons were that bad. I think we can medically say a redo is required. Um, and so it just, to me, it like, this is the kind of thing that they should have like called in friendly columnists to the White House. Uh, this is a point John Pod makes, you know, that they should have rolled out this announcement so that it has uh, amplifying and multiplying m message coordination, you know, where, you know, David Ignatius says, well, I met with these guys and big announcement is coming and they all like support and huzzah and all. And instead it was the most half-assed thing. And now the messaging has gotten even more muddled because they didn't, actually have a rollout of messaging on any of this stuff. Uh, so Jonah, I was out in old town Alexandria last Saturday night, and I'd say maybe 10% of the people were wearing masks. So I, th that message was going to go far and wide. However, it came out. I, yeah, I but the know, administration like, got no credit for it. I mean, my, my, this is my point. It was just, it was like balls and strikes, you know, bunting, you know, one politics, one one when you've got really great news, take some credit for it. I just, it was just all weird to me. I just don't, I feel like I'm missing something. Yeah. I mean, look, one of the hard lessons through all of this has been um, people who may be good doctors or who may be good health policy managers are not always good communicators. Uh, so that the issue, and the other thing is that some of this is in us, the public, and that we're very used to science giving us clear answers. Leaves of three, let it be, right? You know, so we, we, when the scientists say, you know what, we don't know, that, that really throws us. We're used to Jeff Goldblum being able to explain in the second act why the dinosaurs came for it, you know, um, and, and the idea of scientists saying how long, you know, how, how many feet are appropriate between two people? How far does it go when you cough? How much viral load do you need? Uh, are you amongst the genetic who are people who are predisposed to be really, really vulnerable to this? Are you among the people who are not? They didn't have really clear answers for us through much of this. And I think it kind of freaked us out that we were, you know, and the other thing is also that, you know, so some of this is on the scientists and a big part of this is on science journalism because pre-pandemic, a lot of the uh, coverage of, of science journalism, particularly in the non-specifically focused on it type publications or institutions. A new study says that beets can cure cancer. And that's a great news for all of us who love beets. Oh, I'm getting an update. Beets cause cancer. That's a new study says, well, you know, I'd, so eat half beets. Maybe they secure, you know, like that, that's one study comes out and, and people treat it as gospel truth. And then a second study comes out and finds, you know, they, we couldn't replicate the results. We found different results. Well, now that's study, and that just kind of leaves people confused. And they said, okay, I'm going to eat Twinkies for the rest of the day. Yeah. I just, you know, I didn't expect to have Jim Garrity, the, you know, uh, the famed chronicler of, of Hillary Clinton and John Kerry in the 2000, 2000s, you know, uh, uh, noted conservative journalist, just carry more water than Gunga Din for the public health establishment in the Biden administration here. But 
You know, this is one of the you joys of having you on. You, email. Yeah, you, you, know. you, you run contrary to expectations. So there you go. Um, no, look, I, mean, I agree. I, I, I agree with your points that you're making. I'm just making a cold hearted rank punditry point that this announcement was strange. And if I were Biden, I would be furious at the CDC for blindsiding them if they were blindsided. If they weren't blindsided, it's even stranger because you just wouldn't do this announcement at three o'clock on the afternoon on a Thursday with no battlefield prep for, for the messaging on this. And I think generally speaking, I think it's only now becoming kind of clear as we segue into more rank punditry um, or ranker punditry that the Biden administration really isn't nearly as good at messaging and, and, um, and, sticking to a battle plan for for its political agenda than the initial impressions and coverage were right i mean he basically my, my take on it is like the first 90 days or 80 days or whatever of his presidency he had so much wind at his back his sails were just groaning because the you know the uh trump was off social media there were a lot of people who um we're just willing to give him the benefit of the doubt on enormous things. He has that sort of avuncular old Joe personality. He's lost a lot of his lageria and, uh, and the political incentive structure for the first pandemic relief thing was just so huge that we kind of assumed, oh man, this guy really has kind of figured out the sweet spot on all of this. And, um, it turns out that no, they really didn't have a plan. Like my, uh, my friend, AB Stoddard, you know, she makes the case, which I am, I was once completely convinced on, and now I go back and forth, that they never planned on having control of the Senate. And so they made up a lot of this stuff because they thought the runoff was going to, you know, that at least one Republican seat would go, at least one seat would go to the Republicans. And all of a sudden they had to say, what do we have on the shelf? And they said, well, we got the, we got the new deal. Let's try that. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and they don't know actually how to implement that kind of thing. And, um, and I think it's starting to show. But what is your sense on where Biden is at day whatever, 127 or whatever yeah. we're at right now? I think it's a pretty plausible uh, account of things. I, I, too, also think that there, there was potential for a much better Biden presidency. And maybe, indeed, if Republicans had won, you know, if it was still Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, maybe Biden would be having a better time because he'd have this easy excuse to say to the progressive left, Look, guys, I'd love to, but you know, McConnell runs the Senate. I'm not even going to send that there. It's never going to get anywhere, you know. And that kind of, um, he doesn't have that option. He's got Chuck Schumer running the Senate, and the expectation is: wait a minute, we've got Kamala Harris who's able to uh, break ties. We could get rid of the filibuster if we all united. We've got control of the House. By golly, why aren't we, you know, doing everything we want? And that the idea, the story that John Meacham and a bunch of historians came to the White House and told Joe Biden he had the potential to be the next FDR or something like that. Kind of unnerving. Because obviously Biden would love to be that. And when you say, you know, swing for the fences, Mr. President, this history is called, you know, of course he's going to respond to that. And you're, you're basically got a bunch of historians who are basically, Biden's giving them an authority that I don't think they really have. You know, they're, 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 their job isn't to look at what the DCCC's odds are for keeping the House in 2022. They're not, you know, like they're, they're, they're like, you know, just enact the policies we want, Mr. President. We're sure it'll work out just, just terrific for you. And we'll get um, mentioned in the history books as the people who told yeah. you to do this, you know, 
Yeah. Um, the, the, so the three big, three, in my sense, three things happened in rapid succession to make it feel like the Biden's presidency's wheels were coming off. First was the bad jobs report. And that one, like it's one thing, like, eh, you know, today's, this month's jobs report was kind of, you know, under missing. But when you miss it by 800,000, right, that's when you're like, oh, you know, uh, I, if I understand it correctly, like CNBC, they thought they were getting cranked. They, they were not, con- you know, so that's bad news, number one. Then there were two that I had been spotlighting because the numbers in April had been so bad. The first was uh, attempted border crossings from the Customs and Border Protection. And that one, well, you know, like March's numbers was terrible. And remember Biden had famously said, ah, this is just the seasonal. It happens every year. You know, it's like the, the swallows, a Capistrano, you know, you, you know, like this idea of like, okay, let's see if it's a one month blip. Nope, nope. It was even higher in April. Um, when you have two straight months that are the highest in 20 years, that's a sign you're not having a temporary blip. You actually have a perception all across Central America and Mexico that the, the border is open and the coyotes and human smugglers are in open season. And, and it's one of those things where like, that's a real problem. Yes, it's a crisis, even though Politico doesn't like people using the word crisis. Yes, it's a surge, even though the Associated Press doesn't like people using the assert. You know, that's a real glaring, honking, flashing red neon sign problem. And then after that, the consumer price index numbers came out for the following month. And that was among the second one, you know, wrecking the idea that, okay, look, we're going, we're emerging from a pandemic. You know, it's a weird scenario. You're, you could expect to see weird numbers in, in, the, in, in the, particularly pre-revisions. But when you get two jumps at the consumer price index in two straight months, that's an indicator of, okay, this is not a drill. Inflation is coming back. And that was a, uh, you know, the, the, like we, we've, if not quite, not since you and I were much smaller, has inflation been a problem for the United States as a serious economic factor? And I think Democrats, like, I think they they long since forgot the playbook for this. Barack Obama didn't have to deal with this. Bill Clinton didn't have to deal with this. Last time they were dealing with inflation was actually probably before Jimmy Carter. So I think we're in a... Yeah, well, something had to do with inflation. Yeah. Biden was like 55 years old. Exactly. He was, he was a, you know, middle-aged <laughs> a man. Spring chicken, yeah. 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 Um, so just, just laying that out. And so all of this could be like big, heavy. Um, inst- the other thing I, I enjoy rubbing in, in folks on the left's nose is that this isn't right. This isn't Sean Hannity pounding his table and saying this is happening. This is the Bureau of Labor Statistics. This is U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Like this is the Biden administration's own statistics that are saying, "Hey, our policies are crapping the bed. It, we are we, things are getting worse on a whole bunch of fronts." Um, and I think that's the sort of thing that actually hurts the president much more than almost anything the opposition party does. No, I, I think that's all right. I mean, and, and I'm still a little agnostic on inflation. I mean, I'm worried about it. There's definitely inflationary pressures. Uh, Michael Strain makes a very good point that you can get inflation in part just by people thinking there's going to be inflation because it's like a run on the bank. And um, at the same time, you know, you have, you would think, you would expect to have all sorts of weird price dislocations and stuff when you shut down an economy for a year. And then all of a sudden you tell everybody, okay, let's get going again. They have to start up factories. The supply for those factories has been cut way back. And all of a sudden everybody's got to like get back to pre pandemic production levels. And that's going to create scarcity because they, it takes time to do that. So it's possible that we don't, we're not getting as bad inflation as it seems. I just, I just don't know the, but I think you, you made the point earlier and it's something I've talked about a bunch on here is just that if you live in a world where policymakers think inflation is no longer a problem, that is 
probably the best way to get inflation because, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like, remember, like the, the base of the Democratic Party believes in our large chunks of it in modern monetary theory and minting trillion dollar coins and all that kind of stuff and think that there's no problem with any amount of debt. And an enormous part of the Republican Party has lost all credibility on debt and deficit stuff. And it seems to me like dropping an extra five, six trillion dollars on the economy or even because of the psychological thing, even if Biden can't get all this infrastructure stuff through, you get the message out there that he's trying to and people don't follow this on a day-to-day basis. And if they think, oh my gosh, the country's going to fill up with with all these loose dollars, they start responding as if it's going to. And then you get inflationary pressure, even if there isn't the the precursors that they think are going to cause it, because you can just, you can psych people into it. The, the other, one other thing I just throw in there, uh, and maybe you may have talked about this as far as I know that like, um, of all the prices for all the products that affect psychology of consumers and affect the psychology of people, the biggest one by far is gas prices. Because if I ask you how much is a dozen eggs, well, you know, maybe you remember how much you paid. You went to the grocery store. Maybe you don't. All that stuff. People remember their general grocery bill and how much they're buying and stuff like that. But it's not like the grocery store. Every grocery store has a sign saying this is how much twelve eggs are. Every gas station does have a big sign that says this is how much a price you get. And people drive by it every day, so they see it changing and they remember what it was last week and the week before that or something like that. And because they refill maybe once a week, maybe two weeks, they know how much it cost last time. So if it's like five bucks more than it was last time, like, holy crap, that's, that's a huge jump, you know? <clears throat> so that one, and oh, by the way, having a, sh- a pipeline shut down for a long stretch isn't going, you know, doesn't do any good. So I think, again, that'll add to the perception that prices are jumping, even if prices in the overall economy may not be jumping quite as much. If it's, it's happening in the most high visibility portion of the economy, and I think that'll affect people's thinking a lot. Yeah, and also just, I mean, like people notice, the people, people whose opinions about the state of the economy uh, matter notice things like wood being four times it's pre pandemic price, you know, cause that cause every construction guy, every like home Depot guy, every contractor, you know, they see that and they hear from their bosses about what that means. And that sends out a pretty powerful signal too, but I agree the gas thing is the biggest, but so you said, you said a minute ago that you think the wheels are coming off the bus. I'm not sure we're there yet. Um, you don't necessarily see it in the polling for Biden. Um, but it does feel like they're setting themselves up to all of a sudden, you know, we've seen this a zillion times with politics where things look like, you know, someone's approval rating is a little down and you think, okay, well, it's still like in that normal fluctuation. It could bounce back to the mean and all that kind of stuff. And then one precipitating event just causes it to crater and it can't get back up. And it feels like we're getting closer to the crater than regression to the mean with, with Biden. Um, and I don't know what that precipitating event could be, but and it, it, and also, so if you watch Fox news, you would think that the country is just riveted and obsessed with the border crisis. And I'm not trying to diminish what's going on on the border. It's a hot mess and all that kind of thing. But it doesn't feel like it yet. I mean, it doesn't even feel like, you know, Obama had the media on his side too. And his border crisis felt like it was capturing public imagination and concerns more than Biden's is. Do you, do you think that's right? Um, I mean, I agree he's not handling it well and yeah, all of I, that. I, but I, sorry, I do feel like there was a lot more coverage of the border like six weeks ago than there is now, even though the, board, the numbers haven't changed. And I think what interesting question will be, 
you know, we're going to find out in early June what May's numbers were. Did it go down at all? Did it, you know, like if you're Biden, you're hoping this number goes down. They, they keep pointing to like, oh, look, we made this reduction in the number of unaccompanied children, which is better than having it go up. But when the overall total number of people trying to come across, come across the border goes up a little bit, that's not an improvement, really. You know, just different groups of people are coming over. So I, I think, look, Biden got elected to not be Trump. He mission accomplished the moment he put, you know, got sworn into office. And so he's always going to have a certain cushion for people who will give him the benefit of the doubt because they were so irritated with the other guy. They also, however, like he's not really a gifted orator. He can be likable, you know, that there's kind of this good natured tone to him. But I don't think he really is the kind of guy who could go out and barnstorm the country in order to persuade people like Biden looks strong, you know, defined against Trump. Take away that. And he, you know, I don't know if he looks nearly as good. And, you know, I, do I feel better knowing that Colonial Pipeline paid the, the ransom? Like, am I now worried that somebody else is going to pay, you know, like, well, okay, that's great. Except now you've just told these guys that, you know, it works and they're going to go out and hack something else. Um, it was interesting. Actually, funny. We mentioned Michael Brennan Doherty earlier in this podcast. He was going back and forth with somebody on Twitter where he's like, this is, this is the sort of thing people are going to remember. People remember gas lines. And when all of a sudden there's a line down the block and they, you know, it's all the stations in their neighborhood are out of gas, people are not going to forget that. And somebody said, this is going to have nothing to do in November 2022. I'll be honest, I don't know. I do think that that's a visceral, holy crap, what is going on in this country? Why can I not find gasoline? You know, like that is a um, very, you know, it's, 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 it's a very memorable, you know, sense that things are going terribly wrong. But obviously a lot of things are going to happen between now and November 2022. You know, we there's a... Maybe there's a little bit of infighting in the Republican Party these days. That could yeah, do. A, yeah, I, I was going to pivot to that. Um, but on, on on the gas line thing, look, I, I I take a backseat to no one to enjoying good Jimmy Carter jokes and all the rest. But um, I'm inclined to think that the the gas line thing is not going to have. Assuming that we don't get inflation, right? If we get crazy inflation and gas prices go up again, people will, in their memories, connect to the Colonial Pipeline thing to the trends that are in the future. But if, if, if this was a one-off, people also remember, oh, it's because that thing was hacked. Also, you got to look at the states that were actually affected and whether that, you know, like long gas lines in Maryland, it may, char- may, may shave four points off of the Democrats' totals, you know, in 2022, but I don't think it's going to carry any seats if it were... <laughs> Who's the governor? Just one check. Yeah. yeah, so there you go. So, <laughs> but my point is, is it, it remains to be seen. Um... So, uh, Liz Cheney is, uh, uh, out as conference chair. And I, I would, I would surmise that she's going to have a real fight on her hands to hold on to her seat in Wyoming. There are, there's a school of thought that says that, uh, this is all inside the beltway chatter. There was a lot of that on the editor's podcast, if I recall, um, recently, and that people won't care about this in, um, in two years and or in 2022, whenever that is 18 months. And, um, and that this is just a beltway media obsession. They're using Liz Cheney. That's why the Republicans need to get rid of her is because they were using her and she was allowing herself to be used, which I think there's a credible argument there. And then there's another argument that this has, this is going to have considerable symbolic uh, repercussions going forward. Um, you probably know where I come down on this, but w- where do you come down? So some jackass for the bulwark basically started the rumor that I was pro-ditching Liz Cheney. 
I'm not pro-ditching Liz Cheney. I, I, if I were a Republican, I would have voted to keep her in the place. I might have wanted to talk to her. I might have wanted to figure out where she was going with this strategy of hers because I, th- there are a lot of folks who, and I don't, I don't want to necessarily put you in this category, Jonah, but folks who are on the conservative side of things, they're Republicans and they're, they're you know, vehemently opposed to Trump. Um, if they weren't vehemently opposed to Trump before January 6th, they're now really vehemently opposed to him now. And he's, he's earned every bit of that scorn. And their attitude is if we stand up and we stand up for the right thing and we tell people that Trump is wrong, we will win. And you and I have the scars for going back to 2016 and 2015 and all that stuff. It doesn't necessarily work that way in Republican Party politics. I get that it shouldn't be this way, and people should not believe that the election was stolen. They should not believe in Venezuelan hackers. They should not believe that there's bamboo in the paper in Arizona and all this crazy stuff. But a chunk of the Republican Party does. We can argue about how much that is. The optimistic scenario is this NBC poll that said 50% of people said they, of Republicans said they identify more as Republicans than as Trump supporters, and 46% they identify themselves more as Trump supporters than as Republicans. So if you are a traditionalist conservative and you're, you're really want to, you know, you're fed up with Trump and you want to purge the Trump supporters, you're, the best case scenario is you're looking at a 50, 50% of the party trying to get rid of 46% of the party. That's not a sustainable strategy, or they, at least in short to medium term, that's a bloodbath. And that will cripple the Republican Party for certainly this cycle and possibly the next one. And you're going to, uh, all the advantages the Democrats already have, they're going to have an even bigger one. I do think that there's a chance. So this idea that, you know, like, I, I don't think Liz Cheney is wrong on any of these things. But I think this idea that every time Trump comes up and lies about the president, about the 2020 election, we have to stand up to him and tell him he's wrong. Trump is going to talk about the 2020 election every day until the day he dies. Every single day, he's going to jump on his, his not Twitter, Twitter thing. And he's going to say it was the biggest, uh, landslide, you know, so if all the Republicans, like, like Republicans need a way to move on beyond that, they need a way to be able to talk about things beyond the 2020 election. And so this philosophy of every time Trump says this, we're going to refute him. You're going to end up talking about nothing else. You, you need to be able to focus on what Biden is doing here. And I think Liz Cheney, I think, you know, you know, Rich kept making the point. You have to preface this by saying, I, mean, I think my, it was like you on the last podcast, you'd all made the same point of you have to preface this by saying, she's right on all the merits. <laughs> she's right on all the truth. But at the same time, I, as a right of center guy, would really like the Republicans in Congress to focus their efforts on what Biden is doing now and what Democrats in Congress are doing now and not trying to relitigate 2020 over and over and over again. I don't see there's any, you know, path forward on that. So if I'd been a Republican congressman, I would have wanted to say to her, what's kind of like, what's, what's your long-term strategy here? What's, what's your end game? How do we, if we can't become an anti-Trump party, and I don't think the votes are there, I don't think the, 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 the will amongst the grassrooters is there, how do we become a post-Trump party? And I think it's very tough to be a to- post-Trump party if certain Republican leaders' attitude is every time Trump, you know, repeats these nonsense claims, we're going to push back against him, because then you just end up doing the same thing over and over again. Um, as a matter of analysis, I agree with a lot of that. Um, uh, you, you know, sort of like a, it's a Rumsfeldian thing. You go to war with the army you have, not the army you want. You go to an election with the Republican party that you have, not the one that you want. Um, that said, like where to begin? Um, I, I agree trying to purge the pro-Trump people from the Republican party. Um, would be folly if my only concern were 
the Republican part or my primary, even my primary concern were the prospects for the Republicans going into 2022 or 2024 or making Kevin speaker, Kevin McCarthy, the speaker of, of, of the house. Um, none of those are my primary concerns. And I, and there's a thing that, and we've had this conversation before. Uh, and and just as like, you didn't want to put me into a category unfairly. I don't want to put you into a category unfairly. You have, to my knowledge, always been intellectually honest and you always talk about is versus ought and you know, what your preferences are versus what the reality is and, and stipulated that everything Liz Cheney is saying is true. Um, we have been going down this road for five years now with Trump where Republican politicians say, okay, now we can contain him. Now we can, uh, you know, we have to deal with some of his excesses, but we need him for X, Y, or Z. And, um, I get it. I get the addiction to his money. I get the addiction to the, the, the loyalty of his office, of his audience in his fan base, it doesn't change the fact that, again, as you agree, he's lying about the election, that that is a matter of deeply, deeply unpatriotic and dangerous, um, you know, misinformation that um, will have long-term consequences for the country and, and, and almost all of them bad. Um, and the idea that the GOP will not, like, you get into this frustration, right? Where you, 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 one of the, one of the way, one of the paths towards madness is taking Republican talking points at face value and as being actually sincere. And, uh, when they say that, uh, you know, the reason why Liz Cheney has to go is because we need to move on from 2020. We need to move on from the election. And then they never say, and therefore we really wish Donald Trump would stop lying about the election. Yeah, yeah, you can tell what they're really saying is they wish Liz Cheney would stop pointing out that Donald Trump is lying about the election and they're fine with Donald Trump not moving on from 2020. And so I get it. It's what to me, what it is, is it's just a crappy situation. And, um, you know, I remember saying in 2016, I wrote this over and over again, this ends in tears no matter what. So you might as well just sort of write what you believe and stand up for what you think is right. and. One of my problems with a lot of conservative punditry is that at its heart, there is still this notion that the analysis needs to, and I'm not accusing you of this, but needs to conform to narratives that are helpful to the GOP. And sometimes I understand that. I used to be part of that kind of process, and I'm not saying I'm immune to it in any way, shape, or form, or I'm better than that, or anything like that. But at the end of the day, some of the narratives just become so poisonous and so dangerous and so um, illegitimate that um, you just can't sign on to it. And so, look, I, and I, so I'm not saying that there's, I mean, I, there are bad people in every, all over the place and, and, you know, on left and right and parts of the right and parts of the left and all that. All I'm saying is, is that this is the reality we have. And I wish we would hear more from conservatives in our line of work who just acknowledged that it sucks, that Trump is part of the problem, not part of the solution, and that Liz Cheney, as much as she was putting the GOP in a bad situation, the bad situation in the macro sense that we're in is entirely caused by Donald Trump and his refusal 
to often even do what's in his own political self-interest. And that gets lost in a lot of this stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, we can discuss how much Trump is a symptom of larger bad trends in American life and how much he is the cause. But yeah, you know, um, as you were speaking, one of the things that popped in my mind that I kind of wanted to, to run past you is that I don't want to see Liz Cheney get turn into Jeff Flake. Uh, meaning that I always thought, I think it was pretty, pretty clear, you know, Liz Cheney meets, checks every box in terms of, a, you know, she's a, she's a congresswoman from, from Wyoming, right? Yeah, there's no liberal swishes going to represent Wyoming and Washington, right? So this whole idea, I didn't like that she made one of her, fir- one of her first manifestos knowing that she was going to fall on her sword on this in the Washington Post. Um, I worry about her, like she's, you know, and you saw this when moment Nancy Pelosi came out and started saying, I salute her for her courage and stuff like that. A lot of the people cheering the loudest for Liz Cheney right now have no long-term interest in the Republican Party or the conservative cause. They just see somebody with an R after their name attacking somebody else with an R after their name. And they cheer. And what they're, when they cheer, what they're really saying is fight, 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 right? There, there are people who, um, I hope she doesn't, succumb to that siren's call i don't think there's a need for another uh i'm not even gonna put her in like the max boot jen rubin list but like kind of the designated republican critic of other republicans role the mainstream media loves to spot a strange new respect all that kind of stuff if, if you ever said to me that you know somebody with the last name cheney was going to become a media favorite i don't think i ever would have necessarily believed that but uh and the second thing is i think yeah you know, there's, there's a question of like how much is trying to just pretend not to notice the crazy things Donald Trump is saying down in Florida, or I guess he's up in New Jersey now. Um, how much does it hurt you? How much does it benefit you? And I see, you know, right before we started taping today, Kevin McCarthy said uh, he's going to oppose the formation of a commission on January 6th. And I think this is a good example of where it's taking Republicans in directions they don't want to go. Because I have my question, why? What, what do Republicans have to fear from a commission investigating January 6th? I assume the thinking of Kevin McCarthy, because he, he said, he, well, I wanted to investigate the baseball shooting and stuff like that. Other incidents of political violence. You can, like, I don't really think that's a reason to hold up the whole rigmarole here. Um, I suspect that there are Republicans who don't want a commission to investigate the January 6th because it's going to come out with stuff that's going to make Trump look really bad. And the reason it's going to come out with stuff that makes Trump look good is that Trump did a bunch of really dumb stuff. I would love, to, U.S. Capitol Police has not held a press conference since January 6th. I'd really love to see somebody ask them a whole bunch of tough questions. <laughs> the uh, We kept hearing stories about how president was either pleased with what was happening on Capitol Hill, these anecdotes of the phone calls he made. I kind of figured impeachment process was going to give us all that information. We never got it. Ben Sass said he heard people saying that Trump was very pleased, you know, cheering them on or something like that. I want these answers to these questions. I, I feel like January 6th, there are still some questions we have about this. And the whole question of what, what, why did it take so long for the military to respond? Why did, you know, why were they so undermanned and why were they so quickly overwhelmed and all that kind of stuff? So I'm fine with this. And if the idea is that House Republicans are going to basically try to torpedo this commission, either because Trump thinks it's a bad idea or because they're afraid about what that commission would be like, all right, now you're, you know, now you're basically trying to find a way to excuse January 6th. And also some of the, you know, nonsensical arguments of, what was the House member who said like, it was like, it was like a tour that went wild or something or, or yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. All of these nonsense claims about downplaying it. So it's entirely possible that, you know, it'll reach the point where like Trump will leave the rest of the party, no, you know, no, lip, you know, uh, no options that they'll basically have to do this or they'll have to say, yes, we believe that there are bamboo shoots in the ballots in Arizona 
and we believe that China and North Korea teamed up to ship them. Like, you know, like eventually, uh, eventually you won't be able to finesse it. But I understand why Republicans want to finesse it. And I realize that my last thing on Liz Cheney is that like, it's very tough to ask John McCain. It's very tough to be a maverick and a leader of your party at the same time. You know, they're just two different roles. And it's very tough to be, I am leading this party. Also, I think the rest of the party is wrong on this issue. And here's why. For obvious reasons, people don't like being led by someone who keeps telling them they're wrong. Agree with all of that. Um, I think, though, my view is long term, if you start from the proposition that the people that we elect are supposed to affirmatively care about the future of the country and they're supposed to care about the future of the party, um, making this bet that you can cater to the people who do believe that Hugo Chavez or bamboo ballots or people always leave out the North Korean boats that dropped off ballots in Maine. Um, if you, if you cater the party to those people, you know, it's sort of like Bastiat seen and unseen. So you, you, you gain their support, but you also lose other people. And I understand that in the short term, the people numerically, the people you gain are, arguably greater than the people you lose and they exist in places that you need more than places that you don't. And that makes it a tempting short-term proposition. If all we were talking about was, you know, um, you know, a position on, I don't know, gun control or something like that, you know, now, I mean, I'm just trying to pick, you know, a, a salient political, yeah. Tariffs, you know, a salient political issue that people aren't, that probably most Republican politicians are basically just taking a party line position and haven't really thought about and don't in fact care very much. To treat an attempt to steal an election, and um, which is what Trump did, and to treat the lies that he has fabricated um, and allowed to be disseminated to justify that attempt, they're just categorically different than typical sort of politicians will always disappoint you betrayals. And I, 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 you know, I, I feel like they should call, um, you know, the speak, if, if, if Kevin McCarthy gets the speakership, um, they should change the title of it to attorney general of Wales. Because um, the things he he's had to do to get that job don't, in my mind, offset the damage to his soul to get there, and um, and so I mean, I, I part of it is I've just sort of lost the team rah rah spirit. I prefer Republican policies. I'm friends with a lot of Republicans, um, but I just I, I just don't feel like oh yeah, well of course you know we can pick up five seats, so therefore. You know, you can I, also, yeah, like, and, and if you, even if you want to look at this with the lens of pure politics, after Republicans lost the Georgia Senate runoffs, um, Lynn, I made the point that if Lynn Wood, who's never been elected to anything, who just got his butt kicked when he tried to run for South Carolina Republican Party state chair, a state that he'd moved to about 20 minutes earlier, um, when Lynn Wood can show up and say to people, this is ele- this election was hacked and fixed and your votes don't mean anything. And your base of supporters believe it. And the other party's base of supporters doesn't. You need a new base of supporters. 
Because if all the message, because if Trump went out and said, go out and vote for him, although he kind of was much more focused on his particular elections, but if all your advertising, all your get out the vote efforts, all that, if some schmo who came along and defended the, uh, uh, the, the Olympic bomber can come along and come up with some crazy cockamamie conspiracy and Sidney Powell who come out and said, you know, no reasonable person could have believed what I was saying. If somebody chooses not to vote, then your vote is just too stupid to function. And you really shouldn't bother wasting any more time to conceal. Because at that point, anybody can come along and get them to believe anything. They are too gullible to function as a... Uh, I made this comment, God, I think it was on the editors, and people thought I had you know, contempt of this. Well, here's the thing. If you believe Lynn Wood, then yes, I have contempt for you. I, I think I'm a better person. That's, you know, <laughs> let me put it in the, Let me underline it in red for you, right? Because Lynn Wood is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. And if you decide I'm not going to exercise... like So this is my point. If eventually catering to the most um paranoid and uh suspicious of authority and and all kind of stuff <laughs> eventually that group of voters will betray you because they're just going to believe something that will make them not do what you want them to do which is come out and vote for you in the meantime there are all these soccer moms there are all these minivan driving soccer moms and soccer dads and white collar work people who used to be republicans people who used to be the bread and butter of the republican party and reliable republicans and they show know. up every day they show yeah. up in off years they show up in elections are they show up all the time it's part of their civic duty they love doing it they'll vote for a city council election in may right you know that they pay attention if there's a special election because their local congressman died these are the kind of voters you'll love and Republicans have largely alienated them over the last five years in order to get these, you know, blue collar workers who look, you know, when they show up, as they did in Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin in 2016, that's right. When they don't, you're screwed because you've already lost the suburbanites and you're not making up the margin amongst them. So, you know, there, there, there's a you know, more cynical argument of why you shouldn't pursue these voters. But, uh, you know, well, I mean, look, and look, I mean, the Republicans always had, you know, to what and I. I I'm just using the phrase that Patrick Moynihan used. Republicans always had a certain portion of boob bait in, you know, in their politics. And if you kept it in proper proportions, um, that was fine. The problem is, is that if you've changed your business model, that you have to constantly feed more garbage to that constituency, you are going to send signals to the other constituencies that that's what you actually believe and that's what you stand for. and the there was a just a study came out recently uh, it was really interesting about you know the effect of things like cheney um that it sends a very powerful signal to those marginal on the bubble voters who used to be part of the reliable sort of suburban group that says you know they don't care who's the number three conference chair of the gop when it's in the house minority i mean it's such a nonsense thing i agree with it on the merits it's it's an inside baseball thing but symbolically you know, I'm just like, who cared about the Covington high school kids as like actual human beings? Very few people as symbols of this grander culture war thing. They had profound resonance. And, you know, and there are people and I'm sure there's going to be some jackwad out there who quotes me saying, who cares about the Covington kids? That's not my point. You know, my point is, is that they were they were props in this larger culture war stuff. The same thing with uh, drag queen story hour. Joe the plumber, right? And yeah, Joe the yeah. plumber. Right. And. Um, or, you know, what was her, what, what, what was her name? Fleck, Flick, the, the Georgetown. Oh, um, yeah. Sandra Fluke. Sandra Fluke. Yeah. I mean, th these things happen, you know, and these things are part of politics and the people who want to be de minimis about, about Liz Cheney being, oh, this is just inside the beltway stuff. Don't appreciate how she is now a much more high profile character 
And she's this whole affair has sent the signal that the GOP is fine with defenestrating her, but is 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 absolutely opposed of to to criticizing Trump in any way. And I, I think that's going to have long term consequences. But we don't we don't need to keep belaboring this. Or we're going over time anyway, and I think people can figure out where. Jonah, um, it's so unlike us to go over time. I know, I know. Um, but not, um, not only am I the eleventh time guest, I probably like hour for hour, word for word, probably you know, <laughs> more than almost any other guest. You're up there, um, but that's why we have you. If we didn't like it, we wouldn't have you back. So there's that. Very quickly, what have you replaced? I know you were a huge Mandalorian fan. What have you replaced it, replaced it with for your viewing? Um, um, I assume you really liked WandaVision because loved WandaVision. Uh, didn't quite stick the landing, but I'd say the first six or seven episodes were great. Were just yeah. um, my daughter wanted a whole season of just them in 50 sitcoms, you know. Before oh, yeah. They oh, God, yeah, on. yeah. Um, my sons, who are now uh, ones in the teenage years, and one's just a little bit behind that, they were watching it with the kind of obsessiveness that I associated with Twin Peaks. That sense of looking for clues. Wait, what does that mean? And that's that's a signal there. And that's you know, um, I, I kind of was underwhelmed with Falcon and Winter Soldier. Uh, I haven't finished I, it. I was so underwhelmed by it. Okay, yeah, it, it um, and it's not even people say, oh, it's because of woke politics or something. Actually, I think the woke politics are one of the things that kind of make it distinctive, uh, and that are kind of like because otherwise it. Well, it's funny because walking walking into this, I fully expected to love Falcon and Winter Soldier. It looked like the one that was most similar to the Marvel movies and what we've come to expect. And I saw the ads for, for WandaVision. It just looked weird. Wait, it's 50s sitcoms. I mean, well, huh? you know, um, and I say yeah, WandaVision, you know, brilliant off the charts, maybe the most interesting, unpredictable. I can't, I got to see what happens next type show in many years. And Falcon and the Winter Soldier was just kind of clunky, I think poorly structured, um, some characters and plot points just didn't work very well. I'm still we trying to figure Loki. out what the, the Brotherhood Without Banners or World Without Flags movement or whatever that Flag thing smashers. was. Flag Smashers, yeah. Flag Smashers, what that was about. I mean, yeah. let's get back um, to the good old days when half of us were gone. I mean, it's basically Team Thanos. But I, anyway, we don't need to get into it. Oh, 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 I, oh, I could get into it. As I, you know, yeah. I, really want to I know, that's up. why I'm, I'm trying to right. <laughs> steer us away. Um, looking forward to Loki. Um, I, actually, what I'm really looking forward to, Jonah, I'm looking forward to going to the movies. Haven't done it since the beginning of the pandemic. I'm, I'm fully back. I feel comfortable. There just hasn't been a lot of stuff watching there, uh, worth watching there. And it looks like all the Marvel stuff and all the other kind of, I'm a big blockbuster kind of guy. If I'm going to pay the money, I want big explosions and aliens and cool stuff. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious about what's coming next. I, I, you know, I mean, uh, I think it's this Black Widow and uh, there were some other summer movies that look good. So Free Guy with Ryan Reynolds looked funny. It's by, like the idea of like a, a background character in Grand Theft Auto came to life and realized <laughs> what his life was like. So I've I've gone to the movies quite a bit with my daughter during the pandemic when it was possible, and I just saw this last weekend that Angelina Jolie movie. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Those who wish me Any dead. Good or whatever. Or- expectations were low like my daughter and i it's part of our daddy daughter routine to go to movies and so like well we have a high tolerance for movies that on their merits aren't all that great um just for the popcorn and soda together kind of stuff much better than i expected um it it holds your attention the implausibility of look i I, i'm totally open to the idea that there are very very attractive uh forest fire fighter smoke jumper women out there 
but she like clearly weighs like 98 pounds and she looks perfectly made up even when she's like smudged with soot. Um, and it's a little distracting and it's a nice distraction, but it's, it's a little off putting at times, but it's well done. I have to say it's much better done than I would have expected. And, um, in part because the guy who plays little fling, little finger from game of Thrones is the major assassin in it. And he does it really well. Um, and, uh, I saw nobody, uh, couple about a month uh, ago. Steve Odenkirk. Yeah. Bob Odenkirk. Yeah. Bob Odenkirk. Solid yeah. movie. Definitely worth seeing. Okay. Um, he pulls off being an action star. Um, and have you watched mythic quest? I have not. Okay. So first season highly recommend okay. it's on Apple TV. I don't know if that's one of the 35 things you stream, but, uh, highly recommend first season. I'm starting second season and I'm, I'm a little disappointed so far, um, but it's it it's the closest any sitcom has gotten to Silicon Valley since Silicon mm, Valley, yeah. and I really liked Silicon Valley. Ooh. So, um, I, I have one thing actually I'm watching with my older son. So my older son kind of got into the um, apocalyptic teen stuff, uh, Maze Runner, and Hunger Games, and all seen kind of them stuff. all. Not my cup of tea. Um, but the the only thing that's like I mean that apocalyptic genre that I do like, we're clicking through Netflix and uh, there's a CBS series in like 2007 2008 called Jericho. Seen it? Yep. Uh, okay, and you know he's he's got he, he's surprised, and I forgot how good a show it is. It, it's a show that really was willing to say, one day it looks like U.S. cities have gotten nuked. There's not a lot of information about what happened next, and you're in this small Kansas town, people trying to figure out how to survive, what happened, what's going on, and it's just this you know like. You know, on the one hand, this very heartwarming portrait of a small town and good people in it, and just this constant sense of dread and danger and wondering what's going to happen next. So, yeah, but, you know, we're, we're almost through the first season, and it's much better than I remember. So, Yeah, I remember liking the first season. I can't even remember the second season. So second season was abbreviated and kind of, you know, yeah. shortened and all that stuff. So. Um, but I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big apocalyptic genre fan. I mean, I am still watching not only Walking Dead, but all of the spinoffs. Um, oh, sorry, you, uh, well, you know, fear the walking dead shopping with the walking dead <laughs> eating with the shot yeah well there's like a teenager csi walking, walking dead, walking dead. Yeah. there's a little of that i mean and 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 the weird thing is is i actually hate all the zombie related stuff you know i mean like biting zombie okay i've seen that but i i like apocalyptic things for all sorts of other reasons so all right my friend uh great to have you on we'll have you back we'll put all the relevant stuff in the show notes and um I'm glad to hear that you're prospering and best to the family, man. Always enjoy it, Jonah. Take care. Okay, so uh, Brother Garrity has left the building and it's always good to have him back on. And uh, I think what we need on Twitter is people to make suggestions of what a Jim Garrity sandwich would look like. Um, I was a little dismayed that he didn't even talk about what kind of bread that he would use on a, on a sandwich. And I, I come from a, a deep and, and passionate tradition that says bread is among the most important ingredients for a sandwich. If you don't have a good bread for, uh, you know, Italian sub, um, it's not going to be a good Italian sub. And, um, and similarly, one of the most tragic things, um, befalling American Jewry, and I can use the phrase American Jewry, um, is that the number of places, there's a great book called Save the Deli about the history of American Jewish delis and, and the, their plight. And 
it's been out for a while, so I don't know what the current status is, but there were only two bakeries left in the country that made um, the proper kind of Jewish rye, which you need to stand up to a pastrami or corned beef sandwich because it's a messy affair. And if, it, if, if the bread can't hold up and just falls apart, you're, you're, you just have a plate of meat with breadcrumbs. And, um, um, and I found, you know, people, it's a cliche that my people complain about bagels outside of, of New York city. And I'm not immune to that, but it's far more dismaying to have things that people call Jewish rye, which is essentially wonder bread with caraway seeds in it. Um, and, um, and these are important issues that I care passionately about. I suppose I care about like the virus that killed hundreds of thousands of, or millions of people and, and, and the future of the Republican party and all these kinds of things. But sandwiches are really, you know, near and dear to my heart. And so if Garrity is not going to be, you know, forthright and clear with the people about what a Jim Garrity sandwich is going to look like in, on the dispatch deli, um, then we need to crowdsource this to the people. And, um, so let me know what you think. Um, other than that, uh, again, always great to have them on. Not sure about this, the second podcast this week. I've got some personal stuff I got to attend to and it might mess with scheduling, but there will be a second pod. Oh, there'll be two more podcasts this week, regardless just what form they take. Or if you were the other wonder twin, what shape they take, um, remains to be seen. If that is a dated reference, I will explain it to you another time. Um, and with that, uh, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. This is absolutely, positively Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.